You may remain standing as we read our scripture for the morning. It is a long scripture reading. It comes from the book of Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, Paul said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus." to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He has left Corinth going back north. Instead of taking the short route across the sea, he went back through Macedonia. But as he came down going south along the eastern part of the Aegean Sea, he decided he didn't want to spend much time in Asia. How interesting. A few years earlier, he had longed to go to Asia, but had been forbidden by the Spirit to go. But then As his missionary journeys took him around, he had been able to spend three years in Ephesus. You can read about that in chapter 19. 
about his ministry there in Ephesus. But now he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He wants to get there before Pentecost. He wants to celebrate. He's in a hurry. So he comes along the coast and instead of going inland to Ephesus and spending time there, he stays at the little isle of Miletus just off the coast and sent word that the elders of the church at Ephesus come and join him there in Miletus. And this is where he delivers this particular address. This is known as Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And in this, he gives a compass of his entire ministry. Here we see the thinking of Paul. Here we see the, the uh, way he thinks of himself in ministry. And he wishes to portray before these elders, these men who've been set apart and set in place to be the leaders of God's church there in Ephesus and the surrounding communities. He wishes to tell them very important things that they need to know for ministry. Paul has modeled ministry for three years, and now he comes to address them hitting the high places. It's difficult to keep account. I counted about 20 admonitions and instructions and also examples that Paul has given to his people. But I kind of summarized them and hit a couple of them a little bit uh, harder as we go through with the time we have this morning. Now, first of all, I want you to see how Paul describes his ministry among the people at Ephesus. He said he served the Lord there in verse 19. He declared that which was profitable in verse 20. It's interesting that Paul had a lot of things to say. He was a very educated man. He knew a lot of uh, sciences. He knew a lot of ologies and a lot of studies, but he confined himself repeatedly to giving them the things that they needed to know that would make them the kind of believers in Jesus Christ they needed to be. He would forego many other things. He determined when he said he came to Corinth that he would know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I think that is important for us to always know. There are, there are many things, but there's the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. The main thing, the starting place and the ending place. Salvation is from faith to faith. It starts with faith, it ends with faith. And it's all summed up in the continual belief in the supreme truths of Christ's atoning work on the cross, His burial, His satisfaction of sin. It was finished, the work that He had come to do. And then His resurrection, when God raised Him up. And He kept this primary. These were things that Paul had received. These were things that Paul delivered. He says in verse 20 also that He taught them publicly and from house to house. That's the proper forum for the gospel. Publicly in places like this and in the various places that we've seen the last couple of weeks, Paul preaching uh, there in Athens. He preached in the synagogue, the church house. He preached in the marketplace and also in the place of trial or the place of, uh, of judgment in the um, uh, Areopagus. Ministry 
is publicly and from house to house. There's a sense in which the gospel goes to the masses publicly. But then the gospel must come to each one of us individually, house by house. Households are very important in the spread of the gospel. We've seen repeatedly the households that have come to hear the gospel and to believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul knew his ministry was in both places. It was publicly in the house to house. He had a public preaching and teaching. In fact, one of the things he did while he was at Ephesus is for a long period of time, he was there three years, and for a good portion of that time, he actually rented a schoolhouse, Tyrannus Hall, a lecture hall, and would hold forth there uh, several hours a day teaching. Not only the people of Ephesus, and these very elders were part of his classroom students, but also many, many preachers, evangelists, and pastors who ended up reaching the whole uh, province of Asia with all the churches there. He ministered house to house publicly, teaching and preaching the gospel. Verse 21, testifying, bearing witness to two things, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance here, of course, is that very familiar word to us, which means to change your mind. That's really what growth in the Christian life is, is changing our mind about God. The more we learn about Him, the more we change our mind. Some of us, you think, some of you think God is a pushover. That you can just do anything you want to, live any way you want to, say anything, you treat anybody the way you want to treat them. And then in the end, this mushy, merciful God is going to just let it all go and let you into heaven. You better change your mind about that. Some of you have a, a view of God that He is without mercy, that He is so severe and He is so harsh and He is so judgmental and He is so rigid in His holiness that there's no room for the mercy of God. The Scripture never teaches us that the mercies of God are infinite, but they are bountiful. And there is a wideness in the mercy of God. And if you have this notion that God is to be feared and God is, is, is to be avoided and God is to be run from and hid from, then you need to change your mind about God and come to see Him for who He is. So repeatedly we can go on and talk about manifold attributes of God and time and time again we need to change our mind. Sometimes it's a radical change. We turn from one view to the opposite view. Sometimes it's just a transformation of the mind an awakening, a dawning, a learning more about the Lord. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. And repentance toward God is a lifelong quest. And then, of course, faith in Jesus Christ. God's mercy, God's love, God's salvation is not just general, universal, and amorphous. It is focused like a laser beam. The love of God is focused in a person and the manifestation of His love is conveyed to us through Jesus Christ. And so repentance is to be also toward Jesus Christ. And our faith is to be directed 
to Him. This was the heart of Paul's teaching and preaching and he never got away from it. I love the way he says testifying. The word testify is a martyr, someone that's willing to back up their, their statements with their life. Of course, Paul eventually came to do that. He died the martyr's death. And testifying of the gospel of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that makes the gospel good news. If all we had was the news that God condemns sinners and that the soul that sins shall die, if all we have is the idea that God is of too pure an eyes to behold iniquity, if the Lord should account iniquity, who would stand? The thing that makes the gospel good news is the grace, the manifested and delivered grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul enjoyed preaching. It's why I enjoy preaching. I enjoy preaching because I love the gospel. Uh, I love the gospel more than I love you. <laughs> A lot of preachers preach because they love people. And I love people in general. But I love the gospel. I love the dynamic. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And belief in the gospel is a soul-changing, life-giving faith. Paul loved that gospel. He just loved to preach it because he knew it was powerful. He was not ashamed of that gospel. He was not embarrassed by that gospel. And he was not reluctant to preach that gospel. And if you'll read the speeches of Paul, every time he got a chance... Whatever he was talking about, he would somehow turn the discussion back to Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. It says he proclaimed, verse 25, he proclaiming the kingdom is one of the ways he describes his ministry. Now, proclaiming the kingdom of God is really what we should be doing today. Actually, this is Ascension Sunday where we celebrate that time in which Christ was raised to, sin, to ascend to the throne of David at the right hand of God, where the Lord had said throughout all antiquity, sit thou at my right hand. The gospel of the kingdom is more than just Christ hanging on a cross, suffering the awful penalty of your sin, but it's also he has a sovereign reign over all. And when you preach the gospel, you're doing more than just simply offering salvation. You're condemning the sinner. Listening to the gospel leaves the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, the unregenerate sinner, without excuse. If you don't intend to believe the gospel, you better make sure you never hear it. If you ever hear it but once, you are without excuse. Because there is a sovereign who sits upon a throne. And Paul loved proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he loved it proclaiming the kingdom of God in the kingdom of the Jews. As we finish out the balance of this uh, book in Acts, we're going to see how much Paul enjoyed preaching before the leadership of Israel. He loved preaching the gospel because he saw the petty potentates around like Herod, Antipas, and others. He had seen all of these small-time proconsuls and vice-regents. And he was anxious. In fact, just a few months before he made this speech, he had written the book of Romans 
to Rome because he said he was anxious to preach the gospel there at the imperial capital. There was something about the kingdom of God that made Paul proud to be a herald of that king that is the king of the kings. And so he saw his preaching as proclaiming the kingdom of God, declaring, verse 27, the whole counsel of God. Not just riding a hobby horse here and there, but preaching the entire scope of the ways of God, the nature of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he wanted to make known to the Gentiles. And so he declared to them the whole counsel of God. Verse 31, admonishing everyone with tears. Admonition and rebuke should always come with tears. This is addressed, after all, to the elders, and the elders of the church are the ones who are responsible for the spiritual welfare of a church. And they're also ones responsible for the discipline. And when admonition and rebuke and correction, and in some cases, discipline itself, comes upon a member of the family of the church because of their sin and their impenitence, their tears. It's heartbreaking to hear the story of a Christian fallen into gross sin. It's even more heartbreaking to hear that they're not repenting. And it brings tears to any sensitive pastor's soul when they have to administer the disciplines of suspension from the table, of suspension from office. Maybe even finally, when all else fails and all things have been tried, and the prayers are exhausted to find the impenitent, recalcitrant sinner excommunicated. Tears. He says he has shown them something about working hard. <laughs> the ministry, if done right, is the hardest job on earth. If not done right, it could be the easiest. But Paul will tell us something about working hard. He'll say something about bivocational ministry. He will say, these hands have labored. Paul was a tent maker. He had work to do, building tents and awnings and structures, working with fabrics and leather and various other things to, to do that. He was an entrepreneur and a businessman, and quite often he would employ his associates and they would work. He, he did that in Corinth. And he did that the time he was here. Because he says he wants to work with his hands in order that he might not covet anybody's money. And it's interesting, he says in verse 18, that he lived among them. And that's where the pastor needs to be. Among the sheep, with the flock. Not isolated geographically or emotionally or sociologically or economically but should be one of the people living there, feeling their hurts in everything. And in verse 26, he says something about the way he practices his ministry. He says he discharges his duty. And let me read that verse. It's an interesting verse. 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. What does that mean? <laughs> You mentioned blood in that context. Well, it has to do with some earnestness. It has to do with something that, that Paul himself had studied as he had studied the Scriptures. 
When he looked back at the prophets and how they conducted their ministry, he noted something that happened in the life of the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord was talking to Ezekiel and giving him his commission and telling him how to go about his work. And so the Lord says, So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you, the preacher, do not speak to warn the wicked to turn, that is repent from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Paul had spoken of this in Romans 1 as an obligation, a debt that he owed to the sinner to give them the fair warning from God when God speaks. And we know of the wickedness of the city of Ephesus and its supreme idolatry. And Paul had given them that warning. He had told them to flee from idols. The Lord had finished saying to Ezekiel, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Here's Paul assuring the Ephesian believers and the elders that he was free of the blood. He had warned them. He had preached the gospel. He had pleaded with their soul. He had talked to them about judgment and righteousness. He had done everything he could do in all of these things, serving, declaring, teaching, testifying, proclaiming, ad admonishing. Everything he could possibly do. He had pounded the pulpit till his hand was bruised. He had shed his last tear. And if they persisted in their wickedness and in their sin and in their rebellion and in their straying, they would go to hell. But it wasn't Paul's fault. There's a relief in preaching the gospel. You may not see great conversions. You may not see great stirring. But you know, you have been warned. Paul says he didn't shrink away from doing that, that that's what he did from them. Then finally we see toward the latter parts of this passage some things that he warns and predicts about. First of all, he talks about in verses 22 and 23 the suffering that he was to have on his way to Jerusalem. Most interesting thing that, about this is Paul has already made these great plans to go to Rome. And he, he, he made these plans because he had basically labored in the Aegean Sea, the eastern part of the uh, Mediterranean Sea and all up around the coast. And he had, he had really gone over that whole stretch. And he really wanted to now move to the western part of the Roman Empire, which would be Italy, and then on to uh, the um, Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and, and that direction. And so he, he says that's what he wants to do when he writes to the Roman church. And he tells them, I'm coming your way. I've been wanting to come for a long time. I've been hindered, but I'm on my way. I'm coming to Rome. I want to have a ministry there with you. I want you to help me uh, move on then to Spain to carry the gospel to the far west. And yet here he is not even anywhere near Rome and actually headed the opposite direction 
moving further east and south, and he's going over to Jerusalem for the festival. And he is warned that when he gets there, he's going to be shackled. He's going to be bound. Everywhere he goes, the Spirit keeps telling him, if you go to Jerusalem, you're not going to get out of there a free man. You're going to be hauled out of Jerusalem. And he literally was. But still, he persists in the plan that God had given. And he calls it that in verse 24. I will finish the course. I'm glad to know at this point, Paul says, I'm going to finish the course. I'm glad to read in 2 Timothy, the last letter that Paul probably wrote where he says, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He had run the race. He had finished that which he was going to do. He says that he will probably never see them again. That causes great distress on their part. And Paul tells them that. I'm not saying this to upset you. I'm just letting you know this is what it is. I don't have enough plane tickets to get back to this part of the world again and not enough years left in my life. So this is it. There's a finality to the warning messages and the admonitions that he gives. And he tells them then probably the most well-known verse in this chapter, which you hear preached on a lot of times when elders are ordained or when pastors are ordained or when, when uh, particular ministries are commissioned. He tells them, says, give attention to yourself and to the flock. Giving attention to yourself. You got to pay attention to your own spiritual life. A pastor's Christian cannot lead others any further along with Christ than they themselves are. And that's... Um, a sobering, a sobering truth for us. All of us exercise some measure of ministry. This is written to the elders, and we have a few elders here this morning, but all of this stuff applies to the, to the life of the believer. It's, it's uh, everyday disciple-making, as the title says. It is that which we do. And we must give attention to ourselves, our own spiritual growth and development, our own spiritual welfare, our physical welfare as far as we can, our emotional health. These things we need to pay attention to because they affect the way we're able to minister. But he says, give attention to the flock that the Lord has entrusted to you. And I like the way it says it, to care for the... In this, give yourselves... In, uh, attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And by the way, I think most of you know that, but that's why we see the office of pastor and elder and bishop as the same office in our church, in the Presbyterian church. And the reason is they're used here. He's talking to the elders. He tells them to pastor or shepherd the flock and then he says, the Holy Spirit have made them overseers. This is the word episkopos from which we get our word bishop. So the symmetry there is easy to see. It's all the same. There is one office and they are called by three different designations to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. The price paid to put you in this body is the precious blood of Christ. That's how serious your salvation is. And someone, and some group, and some body for whom Christ has died and the blood has been spilt 
is not going to be abandoned. If God would deliver him up for his all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? The big price is paid. Everything else that we receive has been given in the flow and in the wake of the atonement of Christ. We are a blood-bought people. And then a couple of more things. Verse 28, he talks about trouble in the church. This too is a good sermon all of itself. Oh, by the way, each one of these statements is a sermon if you really flesh it out the way it ought to be. This is Paul's outline. This is not Paul's whole sermon, I'm sure. He said there are going to be people that come in and the way it puts it, it just, uh, just sort of turns your stomach. He said they will teach, speak, twisted things. The word twist is the notion in the Old Testament of the word iniquity. There's a twist to it. There's a warp. And that's what those false teachers will bring. He calls them wolves that come in, just let go in the flock. And they'll come from the outside. But here's the sad thing. They'll come from the inside as well. They'll come up from among you, these false teachers, these wolves who come teaching these twisted, warped, perverted notions. We know this happened in the church of Ephesus because Paul had to admonish Timothy to admonish the church at Ephesus. That's where Timothy was later on when Paul sent his letter to him. He was the pastor at Ephesus. And then we know by the time we get to John, the gospel writer who wrote the apocalypse, the revelation, we found that the church at Ephesus had lost its first love. So there was a, a downgrade that is, has a tendency in the church. If you read this, you get a, an idea that, boy, things are wonderful in the church. What a, what a wonderful and mature church. And it was. And a growing church and a dynamic church. Paul had an incredible ministry at Ephesus. Now, those that study Paul's life carefully tell us that that may have been when Paul peaked. Uh, he was there by himself. He was, the Judaizers were not bothering him. He was teaching. He was, he was fulfilling ministry. Uh, he didn't, there's no mention of any of his other associates being with them. He was, he was going full blast. Great and effective ministry. But a few years, not too many years later, there's a downgrade. Any church, any congregation, any representation of God's people can fall into heresy, error, coldness, backslidden condition. Individual churches can do it. Denominations can do it. Whole sectors of the Christian faith can buy into things that are perverted and twisted, both biblically, theologically, and morally. And Paul gives warning about this. And then finally, he gives the great encouragement. In fact, verse 32 is kind of a benediction. Uh, he commends them to God and to the work of grace. And it's this work of grace that will build them up, that will edify them, and that will bring about them the inheritance. Have you ever noticed that God promises inheritance, but then He makes you work for it? And then you realize you can't earn it by working for it, and He helps you get it. That's grace. Grace says, here it is. Well, wait a minute. Okay, here it is. Grace picks it up and says, no, here it is. Oh, come here, let me help you. And go and picks you up and brings you to it. Just like we do with a little child. 
That's what grace is. It's God giving it to us and turning around and by His Spirit working within us enables us to partake of it. And that's the way it was. God says, I'm going to give you the land. Now go fight for it. Joshua? You mean we got to fight? Yeah. God says, I'm going to give it to you. That's how it always works. Some people get hung up. They think it's one way or the other. They get hung up. No, no, no. It's God bestowing it, but it's us giving everything we have to, to possess the land, to inherit the land. By the way, that's the same word that's used speaking of the inheritance of Israel of the land. But ours, we know from reading Paul's letter, which he wrote later to the Ephesians, we know that this inheritance is in Christ and it's an inheritance far greater than anything imagined by the original covenant promises. And it's the God of grace that will give it to us. And then finally, he does something interesting. Paul quotes Jesus. He says, in all of this, we have to help the weak. The whole texture of the Christian faith in the church is helping the weak, the weak in faith, the weak physically, the weak emotionally, the weak spiritually, helping the weak, helping the weak. And he quotes Jesus and some scholars kind of have a hard time because this is not exactly a quote out of the gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But Jesus did say in Matthew 10, when he commissioned his 12, he told him, he says, that which you did not pay for, don't charge for it. And that's what it is in grace. We didn't pay for our salvation. It was given to us. Now let's give it to others without cost and without price. Let us minister, help, urge, lift up, bear one another's burdens. That's the charge. That's the charge to the elders. That's the charge to the church.